based in that Nehemiah text and that Ephesians text. I want to stick with that Ephesians text for a second. Is that okay? All right. Say amen. I just want to ask you a question. Did you know that you, sister, that you, brother, that you're a work of art? Do you know that? It sounds like I'm spitting game, right? You know, you walk up to the girl in the club, you know, it's like, yo, you like Picasso, you know what I'm saying? Because you my masterpiece, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it just sounds like some, just a really bad pickup line. But the honest thing is, it's like, I'm telling the truth. Like, you are a work of art. I am a work of art. First of all, the easiest way to express how unique and wonderful you are, how special you are, like I talked about last week, is that you are one one of a kind in the history and the future of humanity. There will never be another you. There has never been a you. There's only one you. And that is amazing. That's special. You're special. You are a piece of work, divine in signature. You were made one of one. There's billions and possibly, you know, maybe trillions. Who knows how many people will live on earth before, before the Lord comes and before we all are dealing, you know, we all face him and are with him. Who knows? All I do know is <laughs> there's only one of you. You're a masterpiece. You are a unique creation. He knew you before you came out of the womb, before you were in the womb. He knows the number of hairs on your head, whether those are your hairs <clears throat> or whether they were purchased hairs, whether they're your hair or whether the hair number is decreasing. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He's the Lord. You are one of a kind. But second, though, this is for specifically for those of you that you've professed that you are a believer, a walking, a following, a follower of Christ, a follower of the way, a Christian. A Christian, you believe Jesus Christ is Lord. You submitted your life to him and you trust him as Lord and Savior of your life, both Lord and Savior, not just Savior, Lord and Savior. And so um, the second area there is like, as a believer, you're literally God's work of art. If you think about it, and I even think about it, if you look at the text, it says, for you are God's handiwork, that word um, the, the original word, the word that means handiwork there is a word that's translated masterpiece, like a poem or a work of art. And so what Paul is saying here is that you, that we, that we as believers in Christ, we are a work of God's artistry. You're a work of art. We're working God's artistry. And so anytime that you get down, anytime you get discouraged, anytime that you think that you're not special, you're not enough, or you haven't been treated well, you just remember that as a believer that you are God's handiwork. Can't nobody value you or devalue you. You're God's handiwork. You are created by and appreciated by the Lord God created in, recreated in Jesus Christ. In fact, you're a work of art divine in origin and divine in function. You know, in salvation, like it says here, you know, we were created in Christ. You know, we're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus. Um, 
We are in, in salvation. We are recreated in Jesus Christ, recreated in Christ Jesus. Of course, we were born. But if you know the word and you know Jesus and you know that he's he teaches that we have to be born again, that we're born in the flesh. We have to be born of the spirit. And so those of us that are reborn by spirit, those of us that are new creations, you know, in Christ, we are a new creation. Um, the old has passed away. The new has come for each and every one of us. Uh, we were recreated in Christ. Um, we are in this world, but we're not of it. And that's what makes you God's artistic masterpiece. You think about it, people are all over this world, but the ones that are marked by the love and the stamp and the bloodstained banner of Christ, well, that is a unique marker. And so I just want to clarify for anybody that's got a mis you know, misunderstanding, and I know plenty of us do, um, it's talking about how, you know, you are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. I want to make sure we understand that you can't be saved by doing good work. You can't be saved by doing good things for people. You can't be saved by being a good person. It's not, that's not what I'm, that's not what it's saying here when it says created in Christ to do good works. In fact, the previous verse that I didn't read handles that. But <clears throat> what it is, what it means is that it's not by good works that we were saved, but it was for good works that we were saved. And so we've been saved. And now that we're saved, now good God glorifying work can come from us. God pleasing work can come from us, but it's, there's no God pleasing work that leads us to salvation. It's God pleasing work that comes from us as we do what he's called us to do in salvation. And so what do I mean doing the work that God's called us to do? It's like, uh, if you look at this verse, it makes it clear that God has already laid out good works for us ahead of us on the pathway of life that as a Christian, as a believer, there's stuff that God has already laid up. There's layups, there's alley-oops, there's wide open threes, shots that God has designed and, and put on your path to make. I'm in NBA playoffs mode. Anyway, uh, but it says here, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works. What? Which God prepared in advance for us to do. It means God has already got it laid out for us. You don't have to necessarily go trying to figure out your purpose or figure out your good works or figure it out. It's already been prepared for you. It's been laid out for you. And But I understand confusion. And so I understand we got to answer the question, how do we know what good works are? Because we can easily get caught up, easily get caught up in thinking that the stuff that the world calls good is good. And we do. We do so easily. We talk about being a good person. We talk about doing good things and so good for the community and blah, blah, blah. And, and we're kind of objectively um, praising um, people's work that is, uh, you know, actually not objectively, subjectively praising people's work and contributions from a standard that we kind of all sort of kind of agree on. But God's standard is a little bit different than man's standard. Uh, and so when we talk about doing good works, uh, we, we need to define what good works he's talking about, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Well, what is a good work um, that God would prepare for us to do? Well, a good work is defined by Tony Evans, um, one of the most prominent uh, ministers in America today. Um, and his good works definition is the one that I wanted to use here. And it says a good work or God's good works, these divine works. <clears throat> A divinely, a divinely prescribed action that benefits others in such a way that God is glorified. 
I want to read that one more time. A divinely prescribed action that benefits others in such a way that God is glorified. In fact, he, he puts a reference, Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. And what Matthew 5, 16 says is, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your father in heaven. And so we're supposed to um, discover the good works ahead of us <clears throat> and do them for others. The good works ahead of us are works for others, works that benefit and bless others and will reflect well on the Lord. And so we, we have to divorce ourselves from selfish ambition, divorce ourselves from worldly thinking and what the world thinks is good and go a step further to understand that good works um, are works that are approved by God. Good works are works that are prescribed by God. Good works are works that glorify God. And so we can do work that people say is good. But if the thought behind it and the motive behind it and the, the seed of your heart in it and your motive at the end of it, like what do you want to, to come out of it, doesn't connect back to or isn't rooted in glorifying God, well, then it's not a good work. OK, so many of us have difficulty with this because we, we have um, motivations and we see other people doing stuff in the community and blah, blah, blah. But we're believers. We're Christians. Say I'm a Christian. Can't be no scared Christians out here. Christian got to be synonymous with courage, not coward. And so we got to be Christians here. We got to be people whose business is building the kingdom of God. And if our business is building the kingdom of God, if my hopes and dreams are let are like the Lord's prayer, you know, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, then what has to happen is my motivation has to be about building his kingdom on earth. I want God to be known and and known and recognized appropriately on earth. And so those good works, those good works, when we're trying to figure out, well, what are good works? It's on the path like he has already set them out in front of us. They're already in front of us. OK, they benefit others. They benefit others. God is a God of love that leans in. We talked about this for three months. And so it's not about me. It's not about me showing that I love me and I can take care of me. No, God's works for us are those that benefit others in such a way that God gets the glory. And that can take place in a few different ways. Uh, and so it's like, OK, that's what a work is. That's what good works are. Do we understand what God's good works are yet? Yes. Let's say amen. <laughs> All right. Now that we understand what they are. The question that we got to move on to is, well, how? How do I know my divine assignment? How do I know my divine calling? How do we know our, as the church, the local church, the universal church, how do we know our divine assignments? How do we know our divine callings? And I love the fact that that show manifests that just went off the air, that's on uh, you know, Netflix and Hulu and everything. I love that they brought the word calling into popular culture. Maybe it's just a nerd culture, but I know that people have been streaming it like crazy. But this idea of callings and they're given these tasks that they have to do to benefit somebody else. Oh, I love it. I love it. I love that the idea of calling and it being others focused is, is centered in popular culture because of this sci-fi show. <clears throat> And so when I ask the question, how do we know our divine assignments and how do we know our calling? It's not if you've seen the show, it's not as plain as the show. 
It's not just like some vision comes out of the... Now, for some people, it is. You may be gifted. You may hear it. it I'm just saying it, it doesn't work out like it works on the show. Uh, <clears throat> so this is a good question. There are different ways that you can realize your calling or stumble upon your calling or be um, prophesied your calling or have hands laid on you and receive your calling. But I want to draw an important connection today for a specific way to um, understand the assignment, to understand your calling, to understand what you're supposed to do. And also as a part of the church, what, what we're supposed to do. Can we do that? Amen. All right. So I want you to envision what gets on your nerves, like really gets on your nerves about uh, family or your job or society or the city, the state, what really gets on your nerves, like what really bothers you and makes you angry and frustrated about the way things are being done, about the way things are being handled, all of that. Now, I also want you to envision what really hurts your heart. Like when you look at it, it breaks your heart. When you hear about it, it breaks your, your heart. Um, <clears throat> you know, you hear about another young person um, dying tragically through violence. You hear about, um, you know, what the, what they did here in Jacksonville where they took the home, you know, this area where the homeless were tented out and then they just fenced it out and, so to, and try to move them out of sight, you know. Um, it, it hurts your heart. It hurts your heart when you hear about people um, not having economic opportunity. They can't even really provide for their families. It hurts your heart when you see, you know, th these are some of the things I'm thinking of off the top of my head, but you got to think about like what hurts your heart, what really gets on your nerves and what hurts your heart. What causes you dis-ease? What causes you dis-ease? I want you to think about it. You know, even, even feel free to throw some of the things, like type some of the stuff up and, and put it in the comments. Or if you got a, if you can contact me, DM or like send it to me. Cause I want to know what is it that really you just like this got to change. You gets on your nerves or like this is horrible, heartbreaking, really breaks your heart. And let me tell you, let me draw the line. Let me connect the dots. There's you with this feeling, this this like overwhelming burden of sorrow or frustration or anger or a broken heart. And I'm drawing the line directly to you imagining that and thinking that and owning that. It's very likely that the reason you feel so deeply about those things is that God has assigned and equipped you to be the one that works on that, you to be the one that's part of the solution and you to be somebody that is doing this as their good works, working in the solution as your good works, working as part of the solution to the problem as a way that you glorify God. Imagine that. Imagine, imagine. Like That's exactly what's happened. Uh, and the title of today's message is Agitation equals assignment. Your agitation equals your assignment. That's the title of today's message. And, and, I, and I held it back because I wanted you to just listen for a second. But your agitation, the thing that knocks you off your base, the thing that kind of shifts you around. And, and some of us get so consumed with our grind, so consumed with our routine that we don't take a step back and really 
examine how we feel about things. And that's one way that we could get caught up in not being able to fulfill our calling and not being able to be satisfied in our Christian life because we're not working on what God created and prepared us to do. That's one reason why, this is tangent, but this is one reason why rest is so important. If you don't take any time to rest, if you don't take any time to reflect, then nothing soaks in. And if nothing soaks in, and if nothing comes to your mind in your times of rest, if there's no burden that you give yourself time to feel and pray through, then it's gonna be very difficult for you to be on assignment, for you to be on mission. And if you ain't on assignment, if you ain't on mission, you're going to always be frustrated because you're never going to make the impact you were designed to make. God has designed us not to focus on our own burdens. Recognize that we will always have burdens. If you can solve every problem you can think of in your life right now, take a step into tomorrow and you'll have some new problems. You'll never be able to solve all your problems. And so God promises that he'll be with us in our problems and then assigns us to then be working toward the solution for somebody else's problem. This isn't even just a biblical thing. Entrepreneurs make their money solving problems. Uh, pr problems. It may be you people need a better cheeseburger. It may be that people need access in a certain part of town to a certain part kind of service. It may be that, you know, like Amazon, people want to sit in their home and have things delivered to them rather than going to the brick and mortar store. It may be a, a quicker, better form of communication where you can take it with you. And so somebody invents something like a cell phone, a smartphone or whatever, and they solve the problem. They're part of the solution to a problem. And now I'm not claiming that any of the people that have done any of these things have a relationship with Christ. I'm just trying to illustrate that the principle is simple. If you want to identify your purpose and walk in your purpose and, and discover who God's really called you to be, you need to think about what gaps you notice and begin to let God lead you in how you can be part of the solution. I'm talking about your regular life. I'm talking about your family life. I'm talking about your life in the church. God will lead you to your good works. And so I say all this because the, the issue is that the church is full of Christians. The world is full of people that claim they believe in God, but they have no cause in Christ. No cause for Christ. They do no work for Christ. Like they do work. They hope Christ blesses it, but Christ isn't their motivation. Like the Lord, God's glory isn't their motive. And, and the God's glory has to be the motive for it to be in God's eyes for it to be good work. Um, and so we'll complain about the situation. We'll cry about it. We'll even have conversations about it. But there's so much more in front of us than just dialoguing, discussing, being frustrated about a situation. That passion area is where God wants to point our commitment. You know, David was upset that God, not upset that God, but David was upset. Well, David was upset that God was being mocked and God's people were being mocked by this, this Philistine and, and his army and, and Goliath. And so he stepped up and challenged Goliath. He, he stepped into the area of his dis-ease. Esther was brought to dis-ease. You know, she recognized, uh, because of her uncle, recognized that her people, the people of Israel, were going to be slaughtered and there was dis-ease there. So she stepped up to the king in the middle as a result of this dis-ease to do something about the situation. Nehemiah, hearing about what was going on with in the motherland for him, in his homeland, in Israel, in Jerusalem, hearing about what was going on there, he was brokenhearted and he took on one of God's good works. 
Nehemiah took his agitation as his assignment. And there's a few things from the book of Nehemiah, only from this first and second chapter, that I want to point out real quick and get us to an understanding that uh, we and Nehemiah don't have anything different between us. In fact, if there's any difference between us and Nehemiah as believers in Christ, we got Holy Spirit living on the inside of us. Nehemiah being pre-Christ in dispensation where he lived was pre the incarnation of Christ. Holy Spirit didn't, leave, didn't live. There was no indwelling Holy Spirit. He visited upon, but he didn't live on the inside. And so Nehemiah here approaches this very spiritually and this is giving us an example. And so Nehemiah took his agitation as his assignment. Well, how did he do it? I got three, four points I want to kind of pull from this Nehemiah text. I'm not going to get too deep into it, uh, but I want to pull these just to kind of get our hearts and our minds and our spirits moving, uh, revived, you know, re understanding that you are empowered, you are a difference maker, and, and you have a pattern in the Bible for how to go about making your difference for the kingdom of God. And so Nehemiah took his agitation as his assignment. How did he do that? Number one, if you look in uh, the first couple of verses, verse two, he says, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and, and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And so the very first thing that has to happen and has already happened for many of us uh, is that you have to be confronted. See, confronted. It's four C's. You're confronted. The situation was brought to his attention. He's confronted with the unsettling reality. He's confronted with a bad situation. He's confronted with people struggling. He's confronted with the fact that his people and his home are in disarray. He's confronted with, I mean, there's people he doesn't even know out there, but he's confronted with the fact that the situation with them is messed up. He's confronted with the heritage of his people is messed up. He's confronted that the legacy is literally broken down. It's literally broken down. He's confronted with it. In our lives, the first thing we have to allow ourselves to do if we're going to be on assignment is allow our agitation to confront us. We can't live in ivory towers. We can't live in bubbles. We can't protect our kids from everything. We have to allow people to be interactive with the real world. And we have to, we must be confronted by the situations that others are going through if we're ever going to follow the purpose that God has laid for our lives. Can't be just focused on us. We gotta be confronted with the issues of others. All right, so that's the first thing. The situation was brought to his attention. He was confronted. If we continue looking on, um, it says in verse four, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, I'm not gonna go back into his whole prayer, but I think it's key. Um, he was confronted with this this situation and the second thing he did was he cried out he cried out he literally cried he tells us that he wept he felt pain for his people he didn't feel pain just for him he's in a good situation we'll talk about his situation in a second but he's not broke he's not poor he's not struggling he feels other people's pain 
Okay? It's called empathy. Not just sympathy, it's empathy. He feels the pain of his people, Israel, even though he's not over there going through what they're going through. And so he mourned, he fasted, and he prayed. So once you're confronted with the situation, you're confronted with the obstacle, you're confronted with the issue that's impacting many people, that's impacting your family, that's impacting your household, that's impacting your job, your workspace, that's impacting your community, that's impacting your church, I encourage you to cry out. Feel what's going on. I did this, um, I told our boys when we went to Alabama, and we went to the Legacy Museum, it's a civil rights museum, an lynch, anti-lynching or lynching museum. I told them before they got off the bus, I was like, I want you to feel everything. Don't disconnect your feelings. Don't just make this an academic exercise. You go in there and you feel when you read those documents, when you see those pictures and listen to those interviews, you feel. And in the same way, I need, I, I need us to feel like when you're confronted with the challenge or the issue that God has on your path that he prepared in advance for you to address, I need you to feel. I need you to mourn. I need you to fast. I need you to pray. Respond in the same way he did. Mourn, fast, pray. But he didn't just stop there. He didn't leave it in God's hands. I want you to look at verse 11. He, uh, he said, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Well, who's this man? says, I was cupbearer to the king. He was part of the royal court. He was a trusted man, trusted cupbearer. That means you tasting the cup, making sure there's no poison passed to the king. You got to be trusted to be that close to the king. Cupbearer to the king. Now, he didn't immediately take action here because it says in verse one, it was in the month of Kislev, when the, his people came to him, when his brother came to him later in the month of Nisan, um, same year, he's with the king in the king's court. Wine is brought to him. So he's bringing the wine. He's the cupbearer to the king. Um, he had It says he had not been sad in the king's presence before. And so the king asked him, what's wrong? I need y'all to understand like this isn't. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever been told to put on a, put on the right face, like fix your face. You weren't allowed to be sad in front of the king. You could be jailed. You could be in prison. You could be killed for try for bringing the mood of the king down. You were to be happy, dancing if you want to dance. Like you were a servant of the king. You were submitted in serving the king. And so to allow himself to be sad in front of the king took courage, overwhelming, but not just that, because it goes on, you know, the king asked, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. It says, I was very much afraid. Like I just said, this was dangerous. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He basically just risked his life. He wasn't summoned by the king. He wasn't, I hadn't, didn't have an appointment with the king. He basically said, I'm going to show my emotions. I've prayed to God. I'm going to pray to God again when he notices. And now I'm going to say my peace. It, took, it takes courage. And so you're confronted, you cry out, and then you need to 
Take courage. Take heart. God's with you. Take heart. Take courage. Display courage. He was willing to risk it all so that he could ask the king to go let him do what he needed to do. And what did he say he needed to do? I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. So that I can rebuild it. It's courage. I, I stopped reading there, but suffice it to say this. The king allows him to go. He gives him a letter and allows him to go to Judah, to Jerusalem, to, to take on the task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Cities were fortified. Important cities were fortified. They had walls to keep people from getting in. And the walls had been broken down. They were in terrible shape. The city had been routed. People had been moved out. They were exiled. It was in a bad situation. The rebuilding of the city had already begun um, under the watchful eye of Ezra and others. But Nehemiah was called and he found his good work in rebuilding the walls of the city itself. Not the temple, the temple was hand, but rebuilding the walls of the city itself. And so the last thing is committed, committed. If How do we take our agitation and see it as an assignment or turn it into an assignment, we got to be committed. If you read the breast of Nehemiah, you see that he had people trying to distract him, people threatening him, had it so appointed. They were, you know, people had swords on their belts. Even as they were working, there were people guarding the outer, the outer area while people were working on inside because they were concerned about their health and their life and their strength. What it took was a commitment through adversity. He still participated in and led the work. And so if we're going to take those things that agitate us and turn them into an assignment or recognize that they have already been given to us as an assignment, we got to allow ourselves to be confronted. When Once we're confronted with the painful reality of whatever that situation may be, we must then have the courage to cry. We must cry out and then have courage to take a risk in order to become builders, edifiers, people that are willing to do the work of building up God's kingdom on the earth so that he can be praised and so that people can look at what we've done and give him all the glory. It's all because we've been created not just to be saved and be happy and la 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 la. No, you've been saved to do good works. You've been saved to be a difference maker, to change somebody's life, to alter somebody's situation. We have been saved and brought together as church folks for the glory of God and the blessing of people. God saved you. God saved me. Christ died, was resurrected, sent Holy Spirit down to live inside us so we can make an impact on others. He brought us together as the local church to magnify that impact. And so as a church, I say, you know, as an individual, you got to identify what those things are. But as a church, I never want us to forget as a local assembly, believers are supposed to be a part of a local assembly. Believers are supposed to be together and working together toward a common, a common goal in Christ. And for us. He's sending us to Arlington. We're raising money for this building. We're renovating this building. We're moving on to 5919 Merrill Road because God has called us to these three things. These are three pain points that are in my heart and I'm going to share real quick and then I'm going to pray. One is to embrace the overlooked. Embrace the overlooked. The overlooked by the world and the overlooked by the church because there are people that are overlooked by the world and we call them the least of these. We had a whole series about that, but we overlook people that don't match our 
mold. And so those that I had, I was having a discussion about this recently, like church folks don't necessarily reach out to, you know, the people that don't, you know, look like or act like they're already religious. And so if you listen to hip hop music or you dress like, you know, in that style, or if you came from that generation and, and you don't get down with hymns and you're not already churchy, you might just be overlooked. You may not be seen of as seen as useful. And so people, uh, church folks and Christians have overlooked you. Maybe you're a mission. Maybe we'll do something on a weekend for y'all. Maybe we'll have a youth service for y'all. But as far as like just ministering to you where you are and not trying to get you to be like us first, we are here to embrace the overlooked. It is a pain point for me. We're here to evangelize the area, to share the good news outside of the church, to share how God has worked and who God is and what he does outside of the four walls of the church because so many people are inundated with the bad news and we're entertained by the bad news and our arts are filled with a glorification of the bad news but he sent us to spread the good news and last the last thing i just want to share right now is that you know we did it with wrapped in worship and we want to continue to do it but when it comes to you know creatives and artists and and entertainers like or, or and entrepreneurs we want to edify them we want to edify build up this generation this current generation and next generation of Christian creatives, of people that want to use their art, their talent, their skill to glorify the Lord. People that want to be, that are, that want to start businesses and build up their community. We want to edify them. We want to build them up. We want to strengthen them because there's so many people caught up in their own kingdom, in their own business, in their own way, in their own art. What we want to do, we're, we're expressive. We, we are artistic. We're entrepreneurial. We want to take that. We want to build together with others. Embrace, evangelize, edify. It's just a short way to say what we as a church are trying to do and why that 5919 Merrill Road location is so important. It puts us right in the middle of a community where there are people that are creative, where there's opportunity for entrepreneurship, where there's people that are being overlooked. And we, we're called to them. You recognize your call, your purpose, and that you're part of our call and our purpose? Say amen. Let's give God some praise. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I'll clap it up too. Because God is good. He's merciful. His love endures forever. Forever, ever? Forever, ever. His love endures forever. And he has made us his handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which in advance he has prepared for us to do. I'm excited, y'all. We're getting closer and closer. Even if it doesn't quite look like it, we're getting closer and closer to being able to come together to do the work that he's called us to do in that building. That doesn't mean the work doesn't continue outside of the building. That's why we're fellowshipping today on Sunday. That's why we are serving next Saturday for the glory of God. But there's a whole other level that's going to come. There's a whole new level of doors that are going to open up when our doors open up. Amen. Let's give God some praise and let's pray. 
Lord God, I want to come to you right now on behalf of the brokenhearted. I want to come before you on behalf of the agitated, the annoyed, the frustrated, the tired, the sick, the sick of being tired, the sick and tired, the struggling, the 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 meandering, the distracted, each and every one of us who are not sure what the next step is, not sure what our purpose for the kingdom is, not sure how we're supposed to make a God kind of impact in the world, not sure what it looks like or how it looks to glorify you in a way that will make others give you glory, to do good works, God's good works, divine good works, because we've been so distracted by our good works and other people's subjective truth about what good is. Lord, I pray right now for our freedom, for our forgiveness. I pray for our repentance from any dead ways, any am selfish ambition, any um, self-centered thinking, anything that is not focused on you, Lord. I repent. We repent. Lead us and guide us to have a heart, a mind, and a focus that glorifies you. Strengthen us in this season, Lord, bring the funds. We're praying, believing, and trusting you for every single penny, every single dime, every single cent, every single dollar that is needed to complete the renovation and reopen. Lord, you're sending it. It's coming to us and through us for the benefit of this work to be done to glorify you. Thank you for the work that's on this side of the opening of those doors and on the other side of the opening of those doors.